everybody, welcome to It Never Rains on this podcast. I'm Hithliday. I'm the managing editor for Addicted to Quack website. Joining me this week is one of the great writers for ATQ, Adam Holland. How you doing? I'm good. Can't believe it's almost time for football to kick off again. Came by yeah. uh, pretty quickly. Uh, we are getting close. Yeah, no, we, uh, you know, in this industry, we, we, we call this period of time the doldrums because there's no sports playing. We kind of got a shuck and jive in order to get content up. But I'm actually pretty proud uh, of the site. And, you know, we, we've had a reasonable amount of contact uh, content on a, on a pretty near daily basis. And uh, now that uh, sports are in swing again and fall is creeping up on us, uh, you know, we're, we're um, really cranking it out. And uh, Adam, you've been a big part of that. And I, I've enjoyed reading your stuff. Um, one of the articles that you wrote most recently is on uh, one of the uh, new recruits uh, for the men's basketball team, Jackson Shellstad. Um I understand he's actually recently been um, upgraded in two four seven, uh, you know, talent ratings. He's pretty close up there to uh, you know some the the two other you know I think five stars uh, in the class, right? Yeah, yeah. His um, his ratings have have taken a boost and. Um, like I said, during the during the doldrums that you mentioned, I've been kind of knee deep in in men's basketball, trying to find out as much as I can. And uh, yeah, it looks like Shellstad's really starting to to show out, and um, that just makes it an even better um, class of 2023 that we have on board. Um, definitely looks like we have the makings of what could be a big three. Obviously, you never really know till they hit the floor. Um, but yeah, kind of a like a, a under the radar recruit that could actually, I think, really turn into a uh, a great player. But also in the uh, article that I wrote, I touched up on how he, I think, has the potential to be kind of more of a long term player and a potential leader for the Ducks, which is uh, something they haven't seen in a couple of years. Yeah, that's the difficulty with you know this era of college basketball that we live on. I, I mean. Personally, I believe that at some point the NBA is going to do away with the one and done rule um, and college basketball is finally going to complete, you know, the, this change where like the kids who are ready to go pro immediately out of high school will just do that and that college basketball will sort of return to being a developmental league, you know what I mean? You know, like it'll be guys who really want to go the distance and fully develop themselves, you know, before they go pro. Um, and what we have sort of, you know, in this era that I feel like will be viewed as the in-between era, it's sort of, it's this weird balancing act where you're trying to get both, you know, one and done quality talents, but also a, a sort of backbone of the team of guys who want to go the distance as well. Cause you sort of need the mix, you know, we, you know, uh, you know, Kentucky, for example, under Calipari, like has been, you know, went hard at like nothing at the one and done guys and like those guys have not actually been super successful um and, and you know you actually see more success at the collegiate level at programs like villanova for example that are like you know that they're really you know we're going to sort of the all the distance you know kind of guys and i feel like you know dana altman oregon's coach is trying to sort of like walk that tightrope you know and, and so you know i look at oregon's 2023 recruiting class and it's like you know Kwame Evans, 0.9954, five-star, right? You know, Mookie Cook, you know, 0.9940, you know, five-star, right? Power forward and small forward. And then Jackson Selstead, you know, point guard from West Lynn, Oregon, right? You know, where where yeah. the Ducks have had some degree of success, you know, getting getting point guards out of, you know, 0.9790, right? Like an excellent rating. Um, but also sort of, you get the sense, you know, as you wrote in your article, and I think it's true that like, this is a guy who's, who's going to want to like, you know, stick around and be the captain of the team, you know, for a while. Uh, is that your, you know, is that your impression as well that like, this is an attempt to, you know, at a balancing act between sort of transcendent talents that are not going to be. Uh, on the team for a super long period of time and other guys who are going to be like, you know, program lifers? Yeah. Um, I, I think, uh, you know, it, it may be kind of wishful thinking. We'll see. Uh, but <clears throat> I think just kind of based on some of the examples that I gave, 
that he might be the one to kind of stay put for a while. Um, first and foremost, like you said, he's, you know, a Westland product. He's, a, he's an Oregon native. Um, so that, you know, gives him kind of some loyalty to the state. And, and most likely he grow, grew up knowing Oregon very well, knowing the Ducks very well. And uh, so then that becomes more special for the in-state kids uh, when they get on board because it's kind of like a chance to play for that hometown school that they grew up watching. And um, another thing that I think, um, obviously his you know ratings are starting to go up, but another thing that I think kind of helps with that a little bit is the fact that he hasn't been considered a you know full-on five-star recruit. I think what you touched on is true. I think you know we're kind of in an era right now where five stars essentially assures that you are one and done. It just means like you're just going to use college as a springboard and you're out of there. And like you said, you don't always see a whole lot of success with that. You can see players have personal success for themselves and do very well, but uh, the team might not necessarily go that far uh, because they don't have a chance to build that chemistry, that cohesion that you would see before. And so as we move forward, and I agree that, you know, I think we'll probably see a little more right out of high school into the pros. It's already kind of becoming, you know, starting to lean that way uh, with how some of these players have an option of, uh, you know, getting into like um, some sort of, you know, professional development leagues and stuff like that. Um, and I think when that happens, I think you'll see a return a little more to kind of what we used to see. And fortunately, what, what Dana Altman's been able to have a few times, which is, longer-term guys sticking around and making the team better. Um, in the early 2000s, right in the thick of the mania of jumping from high school to the NBA, um, you know, Oregon had their, their big three with uh, Freddie, Luke, and Luke. And um, Luke uh, Ridnauer stayed till his junior season. Uh, Fred Jones and Luke Jackson stayed all the way through, all four years. And um, when you build cohesion like that with their players, and then, you know, looking – even more forward to guys like Aaron Brooks, guys like uh, EJ Singler, who just uh, become kind of like that foundation of the team. I think that uh, really is what Altman can use uh, to help continue to have this program playing at a high level. You know, the thing that, you know, I went and watched some of uh, Shellsad's film um, and he has a lot of the qualities that I've been sort of like demanding uh, out of the basketball team for a long time now, in particular, like, you know, the offensive production in terms of like, okay, it's there. I I'm going to drive to the bucket. You know, um, in fact, I think in your article, you, you mentioned that, uh, you know, some of the scouts you know, have referred to him as the auto bucket, uh, which, you know, I, I dig. My question for you, uh, Adam, uh, is in your research on Shellstad, like, does he have the defensive chops? Because like, I really felt like that, that was an area where his fellow Westland high school, uh, compatriot, you know, Peyton Pritchard, you know, really sort of like, uh, uh, shined, uh, you know, d despite his sort of, you know, his physical size limitations, like that guy was a real bulldog on defense. And I'm wondering if you saw the same thing out of Shellstead. Yeah. Um, I can say that from the clips I saw, and again, we kind of touched on this last time that it's, it's tougher to find defensive highlights of high school players. Uh, they really just kind of like want to put together the, the showmanship, the, you know, the athletic ability and on offense and everything. Um, from at least what I've seen from him, he does look like he's tenacious. Um, now, is he is he to the level of tenacity that Peyton Pritchard displayed? Doesn't quite look like it yet. However, I'm not sure if you agree with me on this or not, but I think that um, Altman's coaching ended up being kind of like a, a byproduct of why Pritchard got so tenacious on the defensive end. Um, I really think that it's it's something you see a lot of out of guards that play for Altman is even if they're kind of like an offensive guard who can create shots for themselves, they tend, if they stick around his program, to get more and more like defensive minded. And I really think that um, in addition to being able to create shots for himself, I think that was one of the things that took Pritchard's game to the point where he was able to become, you know, packed. 12 player of the year to be able to get into the NBA, to be able to be a successful player in the NBA is that um, it's a guy who can create shots for himself, but a guy that gets after it on the defensive end. And so 
I think that Shellstad shows at least the, uh, you know, drive to play good defense. Um, I wouldn't be surprised, like I said, if he sticks around for a little while, if Altman can bring out a little more of that bulldog in him. Um, but as far as the offensive game goes, uh, the auto bucket analysis is, is pretty on point. This this kid knows how to get himself shots, whether it be layups, whether it be step-back jumpers, whether it be three-pointers. He's very good at creating shots for himself. And that was something Pritchard, who was maybe a little bit undersized and not quite as athletic as you'd expect, like excelled at. And so what you're taking here is like Shellstad, who's a little more athletic than Pritchard, still being able to do that. And uh, hopefully, like I said before, Dana can get the most out of him on the defensive end because his athleticism can be put to good use there too. How does the overlap work with Will Richardson coming back? How do you think that dynamic is going to play out? <laughs> Interestingly enough, that was the, the the very first comment I got on that article um, was kind of like, "Well, wait a minute, is he even going to play with Richardson? Is there, you know how's that dynamic going to work?" Uh, the reason why I think it could be a really good fit is because I think if there's one thing we've seen from Richardson, and I kind of touched up on this earlier in the summer in that article that I went in depth on him, is that he never really came across as a pure point guard. Now, does he play the point? Yes. Does he you know, start at the point sometimes? Yes. Is he more, in my opinion, of a combo guard? Absolutely. I never quite got the sense that that uh, Richardson was kind of like completely comfortable being the man handling the ball. Um, I think he plays very well off the ball. I think like Pritchard and Shellstad, Richardson can create shots for himself. But if you look back, Richardson played with Pritchard for two years. And that was when, you know, Pritchard was the guy. He was the point guard and Richardson still found himself on the floor quite a bit. And I think that shows in itself that he enjoys playing kind of like a combo guard. And in that sense, I do think you'll see a lot more of them on the floor together. All right, let's take a break. Uh, when we come back, we'll uh, we'll keep talking about uh, men's basketball uh, since the Ducks just completed their swing in Canada and uh, Adam wrote it up. And I'm uh, interested to hear what he has to say about that. Uh, we'll be right back. All right, Adam, this sort of surprised me. Uh, the The Ducks went up to uh, Canada to play uh, five different Canadian universities um, in uh, uh, Montreal and Ottawa and, and uh, Toronto. Um, they uh, uh, enjoyed some uh, degree of success, uh, some, you know, bigger than others. Um, what was your review of the entire uh, event? Well, first and foremost, if you're ever going to go up to Canada, summer is the time to do it. Mm. So let's just be glad they didn't try to venture up there in November and get stuck up there. Um, All joking aside, though, I I think this was a a good bonding experience for them. Um, I think that, you know, a lot of teams, when they get into like summer camps for basketball and stuff, uh, they tend to keep it local a lot. Um, they, you know, try not to get too far from campus, you know, especially not out of the state. So I think for Oregon to uh, pack up their bags like that and go out of the country, um, for a swing like that was, uh, was a great experience for the team to get an early feel of traveling on the road, um, of being away. And then the cohesiveness that they're going to need to show doing that. I also think it gave them, you know, a, a good warm up for like, how they're going to have to play in uh, real competitive, like in league games and stuff. Obviously these Canadian universities that they were playing are not going to present the level of competition that, you know, in conference opponents will, although the second game was a lot closer than it should have. Mm. And, but I still think that that was good because, uh, you know, they, they found themselves in at least one situation where they really had to fight and scrap to pull a victory out. And um, I think it was it was it was really good, especially for the young guys. Um, I think that what we saw up there was kind of the emergence of Kalel Ware and Nate Biddle, 
and especially kind of like why Nate Biddle was a five-star recruit in the first place. Um, you know, there was a lot of excitement about him when we picked him up last year. You know, seven-footer, uh, good, good handling, good shooting, really seemed to possess that kind of skill set that, uh, you know, you look for in, in bigs in, in, the, in the current day and age. And um, he did, you know, get hindered a little bit just by the fact that Oregon already had two established veteran centers in Nafali Dante and Frank Kepnong. Um, obviously, Kepnong's moved on. Uh, Dante will be back for the season, but because of his visa restrictions, he wasn't able to make the trip to Canada. Mm. So I really think that uh, playing alongside a, you know, a true freshman in Kalel Ware, Nate Biddle became kind of like the veteran big guy himself. And uh, I think he really kind of showed what he was capable of up there. And just seeing the two of them and what they were able to accomplish up there um, from a couple essentially freshmen, because Biddle didn't see a whole lot of time on the floor, um, is really, really encouraging, at least for me. Yeah, I don't think Biddle played in the, the last two games of the the five-game swing um, against McMaster and Toronto uh, Metropolitan. Um the fourth game against McMaster was a, it was a little close. You know, they got outscored in the second quarter. Um, but, you know, they were basically in control of it. It was, uh, you know, I caught what I could, you know, on streaming. Um, it was a little surprising that they basically had to ball out in the second game against uh, uh, Ottawa. Um, yeah. You know, they they, out, they wound up winning that one by only uh, two points, and it required, you know, Quincy Garrier really sort of going off there at the end to, to lock it down. Um do you think there's anything to be made of that or is this, you know, just exhibition ball? They're having fun ironing this stuff out. Well, like I said, there's always going to be that one off night. Um, you see it, you know, with teams all the time, you can uh, throw it back to Oregon football in 2010, who just took care of every conference opponent so, so easily. And then we're, we're just, you know, tooth and nail away from being upset by a, completely undermanned mediocre Cal team it can happen to anybody anytime anywhere and it, it did happen to them um, against Ottawa um, but I think the encouraging thing to see at least is that Guerrier who um, you know was one of the ones that chose to come back uh, for his, his final year of eligibility uh, looked to be kind of like a go-to guy in that situation um, I remember saying last year that that was an issue for the Ducks that uh, in crunch situations when the game is close, they didn't have that guy that you'd give it to him and he would be kind of the guy that you knew could get you buckets, that you knew could produce in, in, in the clutch. And so at least in a, in a close exhibition game, we got a sense that Guerrier could you know, possibly be that kind of guy in those situations, like the closer for Oregon. Now, I don't want to read too much into it because it was an exhibition game in Canada, but like I wouldn't be surprised if you see a little more from him on that on that level this year. You know, it was interesting. It, it reminded me of not, not like it was a life for it or anything, but like you know, Oregon's nineteen thirty eight season when the you know the first year of the NCAA championship when Oregon you know won it all, uh, where they had that you know that east East Coast swing to start the year, you know, and, and like I, I felt like you know it's part of like. Oregon lore at this point, you know, the extent to which like that sort of trip where they were out and like, you know, they, they played a game at Madison square garden. They played a game at, at, you know, in Philadelphia's convention hall, they played in, you know, Ohio and Michigan and Illinois, you know, like I felt like that, you know, it, it, it was interesting in the, in the way that the, like, you know, in, in the history books, you know, it talks about how that shaped the team, you know, that, that like being on the road for that long together was like important. And like, I don't know, man, like that, that feels like, I don't know, uh, like th this Canada trip came as a surprise to me. Like I, maybe it shouldn't have since I'm the editor of a ducks website, but like, you know, when this happened, I was like, Oh really? I, I didn't know this was uh, going to happen. And then I was like, this is really cool. You know, like I, 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 this is sort of like harkening back to the old days where you, you know, you barnstorm the country. Uh, I, I, I hope the guys had a lot of fun. You know, what do you think about that, that, that notion of like, this is a good, you know, team building experience. Uh, you, you think that's overblown? You think that's, you know, or do you think that's real? No, I think it's real. Um, I, uh, even, even touched up on that in, in the article about how I think, um, 
that doing kind of extracurricular stuff like this um, on, on the level that they did it is, is really a great bonding experience for the guys. Um, like I said, when you're, when you're in the position Altman's in where you have, you know, lots of, lots of transfers, lots of junior college players. And now because of his success, having to mix that in more and more with these like, you know, five-star recruits, um, it can be tough. It can be tough to, to get that cohesion. And, you know, obviously we've seen it time and time again that he eventually achieves that cohesion due to his, you know, outstanding record in like February and March. It's almost uncanny how he's always able to get teams to come together like that. Um, and I think getting an early start um, on that is great. And also you have to remember that this is the uh, the first time in three years that uh, Oregon basketball has had an uninhibited, uh, you know, training camp like uh, there before the previous two seasons it was all you know kind of like pandemic related there was all these restrictions mm-hmm. on where they could go what they could do who they could play now with everything settling down on that front it's that they really had the door wide open and they really went through it like they went through it out out of the country and really took advantage of that and i think that's great i think it kind of really says that like hey, this team this year is going to have a different mindset, you know, just because we're the Ducks, just because we nabbed some five-star recruits, you know, yada, yada. Doesn't mean anything unless you stick together, play as a team, and battle it out. And I think that the fact that they were willing to, you know, go all the way up to Canada, spend a little time up there, uh, like I said, get challenged a couple times, uh, it's, it's, it's great for them. It's a great learning tool. Yeah, I, I, I'd love for that, you know, February consolidation to take place maybe a month or two earlier. That'd be real great, Dana. Um, and, uh, I, I, you know, I also wouldn't be surprised if this sort of like helped out a little bit with Canadian recruiting. You know, Canada's actually been pretty kind to the Ducks uh, over the years. Um, I wouldn't mind getting a few more Canadian basketball players, would you? Uh after seeing what players like DeVoe Joseph and Dylan Brooks and Chris Boucher have done, no, I'd, yeah. I'd, I would happily take several more Canadian players at this point. Uh, all right, let's take a break. Uh, we come back, we'll talk a little Ducks football. I, they got a big game coming up, I think. All right, it's finally upon us. We have suffered uh, all this long time since uh, December uh, with no football at all but uh here we are we made it nine months later uh and and uh finally time for a little bit of football against a a team called the georgia bulldogs you ever heard of them (laughs) Uh, maybe in passing uh i wrote an article uh previewing uh the georgia bulldogs it was a product of quite a bit of film study um it was uh, an interesting experience because in a weird twist of fate you know georgia's defensive coordinator became oregon's head coach and so in the process you know i i needed to write an article about dan lanning um and and his defense in order to sort of you know go, go through the the structure and philosophy of the new defensive scheme that 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 oregon will be employing and like what better team to use you know film clips of than you know george's defense but then you know it was a weird experience because it was like you know as i was charting the games i was like tagging certain plays as like this one is appropriate for the theory article because you know it demonstrates philosophy and also uses their like um, cause, cause like for the second article, the one that I just wrote, that's sort of the, the act, the preview, the actual Georgia Bulldogs in 2022 that we're going to see in which I'm trying to focus on the returners. Like, you know, I, I, I didn't want to put clips in that article of the guys who are now in the NFL, right? Like who, you know, that, that's not, that doesn't profit anybody to, sh- to, to, to show like, you know, what did the guys do last year who weren't on the team anymore? Um, except to the extent that it illustrates like what this, the, the structure is. So like, as I was charting the games, you know, I was like constantly like tagging them for two different purposes. It was like kind of weird. Um, it is, uh, um, it is remarkable though, how much like talent that they're losing on defense. Um, like more than I think that a lot of people are really appreciating, like they're returning basically like two starters and one of them I'm kind of shaky about. Um, one of them I think is really good. And like another guy who's a backup, but practically a starter, I I should say more like they're returning two and a half starters and and two of the two and a half, I think are, are really good. Um, 
like, but it's, you know, it's a lot of untested guys on the defense. Um, like that's, that's where I really feel like there's the, you know, the biggest unknown is like, cause I, I really don't know how Oregon's offense is going to perform. And I really don't know how all these Georgia replacements on defense are going to perform. Like this could be pretty wild, you know? Yeah. It's going to be a lot of unknowns heading into it. And um, the fact that they lost so much talent on defense uh, definitely is somewhat of a relief to me uh, because with the way their defense performed last year, um, no matter what kind of offense we were rolling out there, I'm not sure I'd want to go up against that. Um, oh, that being said, like I said, there's, there's a lot of unknowns up in the air on, on both sides. Um, because of that, I think that we probably will see a pretty competitive game. You know, there's, there's kind of a, a general consensus that this should be competitive game. Now you, you look at the sec bias, you, you know, you look at the fact that Georgia just won the national title, whereas, you know, Oregon stumbled into the Alamo bowl you think, okay, well, that's not really much of a matchup. Georgia should run away with this. Uh, it's in Atlanta. It's basically a home game for them. Uh, but just given what we have in play here with, with, with Georgia kind of having to bring in so many new people and with Lanning at least, you know, kind of having competed against their offense all of last year and understanding a lot of the systems that Kirby Smart employs – uh, yeah, I'd, I'd, I would not be surprised if this was one of those games that was, uh, you know, kind of tooth and nail all the way until the fourth quarter. Now, do I have like a ton of confidence in Oregon being able to go down into Atlanta, into Georgia territory and just, you know, just pull off this this, this game against the defending national champs? Of course, of course it could happen. You know, anything could happen. Do I realistically think it will I'm I'm kind of not you know leaning that way. I'm I'm thinking that in the end, um, you know, Georgia's style of play and everything might eventually kind of wear them down a little bit, um, and that, you know they they might take it kind of in the end. But I would not be surprised if, like I said, it was it was anybody's game heading into the fourth quarter. Yeah, that's you know I have a hard time seeing either team you know winning in a blowout in this game. Although, as you say, there's a scenario that I think is plausible in which Georgia sort of pulls away in the fourth quarter. You know, after a a, a pretty competitive game, and the reason for that is just their tight ends. They're like one excellent tight end is kind of a cheat code in college football. And they're going to have three, maybe four, um, if their true freshman Delp really works out uh, early. Um, and like, oh man, just the, the, I mean, that's essentially what happened in the national title game last year is that Georgia, you know, they were having a hard time scoring um, in the first half. And it really wasn't until the last you know, basically the last two drives of the football game where they were, you know, uh, you know, honestly, luck is a four letter word in the analytics game. Um, you don't want to rely, you know, or try to explain away too much by just saying luck. But I mean, honestly, that's, that is what I was seeing is that in the first half of that game, it was sort of like balls were bouncing off a guy's hands. Um, and in the second half, it was like sort of improbable catches were being made where it was like, you know, the, the, the ball hits the guy's hands, pops into the air, and then he recatches it. And it's like, dude, that's pure luck. It's pure luck whether the first happens or the second happens. And they they just sort of were getting third down conversions on those last two drives on sort of like, oh, wow, you know, kind of kind of plays um, that they, you know, weren't happening for them in the first, you know, couple of drives. And, and you know what, you know, you know what contributes to that sort of, uh, you know, that kind of like, you know, by the skin of your teeth, by the fingernails of that catch kind of stuff is like six foot seven tight ends, you know, like, um, so like, I, you know, I can see that scenario, but the idea that like wire to wire blowout, uh, that's, I mean, it's just not going to happen. Like, I, I really, really doubt it. There's just, you know, yes, Georgia has a lot of talent. And in fact, they're sort of a model school because, you know, I, I use all these same tools, to, to analyze rosters, you know, for the Pac-12 and for all of Oregon's opponents. And, you know, I've been, I've been reviewing teams like Ohio State and Oklahoma and Georgia, um, 
and like you can see like really top quality roster management and a lot of it is their recruiting but like it's also like a sort of consistency and balance across positions and across classes so they're not really surprised you know anywhere and Georgia's like it's an excellent you know roster management um in fact, I was sort of joking around in a different podcast that, like, I should have started with Georgia. Like, I did this whole series of, on all of Oregon's opponents and, and everybody in the Pac-12, right? And, like, you know, I started with, like, Arizona and Arizona State, you know, schools where they're, like, they really have serious problems with roster management. And then I, like, the last one that I wrote is Georgia. And I was like, I should have done it in the opposite order. I should have started out with Georgia to be like, here's the model. You know, like, here's yeah. the exemplar of, like, how you're supposed to manage your roster. So that I could then, mm-hmm. you know, turn around and illustrate like, okay, now let's look Here's at what everybody 12. else is doing wrong. <laughs> Just like, yeah, exactly. Um, so, but, but like, for example, like Georgia's um, inside linebackers, you know, it's basically, uh, uh, they're basically playing two on any given play. Uh, they had three guys. And so it was sort of a, you know, an A and B, B and C, A and C kind of rotation. Although actually on a couple of downs, situationally, they might play all three inside linebackers and like pull a couple defensive linemen because you know it's, they do wacky blitz stuff um and like all three of those guys first of all they all got drafted because of course they did and second of all like it was really weird because they would um they played the starters really late into garbage time like none of the backup inside linebackers got a sing- single meaningful snap um and not just no meaningful snaps, but like very few snaps, period. And, and you know, other positions throughout the defense and, and, and the offense as well, you know, they, they were doing more rotation, you know, towards the end of meaningful time and then definitely throughout garbage time that, you know, the backups got a lot of play. But the inside linebacker is kind of an exception where it's like, it's really baffling, Um you know, and I, you know, I posted my article to Reddit and asked Georgia fans, like, what do you guys think about this? And, and the folks who responded to that were all like, yeah, that was really weird. It felt like they were like chasing records, you know, that, that it was sort of like, you know, point of pride that they would stay in that late. And I was like, pride doesn't help you in 2022, man. You know, like, you know, yeah. money is what you get for being, you know, getting paid by the NFL is what you get, you know, sit down and let the, the kids play. I, I sort of feel like boy who was managing georgia's defense last year that dude really made a bunch of mistakes you know (laughs) (laughs) for the you know but it's bizarre like i really i have no idea who they're going to be playing in the the inside i mean i sort of you know probably demont johnson you know has a a spot locked up you know i saw him a bit in the spring game and like and you can see the guy's you know, you can see their talent when you watch them for like the five minutes I was allowed to watch them during garbage time and during the spring game. But it's like, there's no substitute for real experience. And, you know, a huge amount of what Georgia is going to trot out. And it's the first game too, you know, they don't get like an FCS tune-up game. Um, you know, a huge amount of it is, is going to be like getting real reps for the first time. Um, I, I I have a feeling this could be a fairly high scoring game, you know, like both teams turning in scores in, in the thirties. Um, yeah, uh, because like Georgia's tight ends are undefendable or practically so in Georgia's defense, like, you know, by the end of the year, they may be a totally elite defense, but in their very first game, you know, and especially and to the point you made about the tight ends too, you're also dealing with a quarterback that's a master of picking people apart with short passes. Oh, definitely. So, that's what I definitely yeah, noticed. That just about plays that right into the hands, pardon the pun, of the of the tight ends that they have. Yeah, that was definitely. I mean, I was I, I made it the first line in my article for a reason. Is you know I really felt like opposing defenses. Uh, that Georgia faced, you know, so I'm primarily talking about SEC defenses here, like really underestimated Stetson Bennett and really screwed up. Like, I really feel like that was a big strategic miscalculation that they made um, because like Bennett was absolutely central to their offense. Um, and in specifically the, the thing that, you know, that that was the part that they under allocated resor- defensive resources to the thing that they were pulling those resources in order to over allocate to and they shouldn't have was Georgia's rushing attack Georgia's rushing attack kind of stinks um 
and the best part of it was who else? Stetson Bennett. Like uh, on the two sort of designed quarterback run plays, he he kicks ass. Um, and, and you know, it's not because their running backs stink or anything. I don't I don't think that's true. I think their offensive line is actually pretty bad at run blocking. It's kind of shocking because yeah. um, they're they're really good at pass blocking. It's like this huge dis- discrepancy yeah. between. So do you think it's more of a, a of a system thing then, where it's just mm. kind of like it's more geared toward pass blocking than run blocking, or do you think it was an actual real issue? I don't. I don't know that it's a talent thing, and I don't know that it's a scheme thing. And when I say don't know, I should be more clear. Uh, it's not a scheme thing, and it's not a talent thing. The talent is there. The scheme in order to run block is there. It's the same sort of running plays that you would expect out of you know all very successful um, rushing offenses. It was that those offensive linemen, no, nobody taught them how to run block very well. In fact, I put multiple clips in my article where they're sort of like, I sort of consider a bit of what I do to be educational work. Like I sort of feel like I have an obligation when I'm putting all these video clips into sort of like, let me teach you how football, you know, some of the nitty gritty of how football works. And so like I specifically put in clips, it's like your body has no power when you're lunging like this, like your, your weight needs to be centered over your hips, not like in four, you know, three feet, uh, over your feet. Um, and, uh, and, and, I mean, it was like embarrassing, honestly, to watch some of those guys on some of those plays, you know, block. It was like that's shit that 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 Pop Warner, um, you know, coaches would scream at offensive linemen for doing. And I was seeing it out of, you know, national championship winning offensive linemen. It was crazy. Um, Now, I I realize that having watched the Ducks for the last 20 years sort of spoiled me in terms of run blocking, because like I really feel like Oregon's run blocking is you know, over the last 20 years has been elite. Um, and I also get to watch other teams that are really excellent at it. I get to watch, you know, over the years, I've watched Wisconsin a couple of times, excellent run blocking out of Wisconsin. I've watched Ohio State, excellent run blocking out of Ohio State. I watched Oklahoma, excellent run blocking out of Oklahoma. And then I turned on Georgia's run blocking. And I'm like, ugh, this is like watching Cal. Uh, this is bad. Um, yeah. and, and so... Um, there's just not holes for the running backs to run through as good as those running backs are. Um, and, and it was, and so it made it all the even more, you know, stranger to watch sec defensive coordinators, you know, a, a, attack Georgia's offense with like eight man boxes like th- this was the scariest rush offense in the world and it wasn't until week 11 Tennessee finally figured it out um you know, which act was which was their last regular season SEC game because week 12 is like an FCS team and week 13 is Georgia Tech and like oh my god Georgia Tech was so <laughs> overmatched it wasn't even funny um yeah but like starting with um starting with Tennessee in week 11 and then Alabama in the SEC championship game and then Michigan did it to some extent and then Alabama repeated it in the national championship game those four games um, and then to some extent Georgia Tech did this too but like they were so overmatched that it didn't matter so really I'll throw f- a fifth game in there too against FCS opponents like they were really backing up and playing six man boxes they were like I don't care and this was while Georgia here's the other you know part of the equation is that Georgia had a, a pretty significant wide receiver injury to George Pickens um, who was drafted in the second round he's their excellent wide receiver but he was injured for most of the year um and brock bowers their just totally elite tight end was a true freshman and i feel like munkin didn't quite know what he had um in that guy until um maybe halfway through the season and uh darnell washington their other like totally undefendable um tight end um was he was uh, he had a he had a broken foot, and um, it took him you know until about midway through the season to really fully like you know become the dude that he eventually became. Um, and they got this transfer from uh, LSU, Eric Gilbert. He missed all of 2021 with a personal um, reason, and then, and so their third tight end was uh, John Fitzpatrick, who's really you know primarily a blocker. So like I. I understand why Munkin was a bit slow to pick up on the fact that he should be really running all the offense through the tight ends. Like there's, there are really good reasons why he didn't figure that out in game one. Um, but by game six, he had figured it out. Um, and, um, and so then there's like, I'm watching maybe, I don't know, five games or so, um, in which, 
Georgia's offense is one thing, but SEC defensive coordinators are treating it like it's this other thing. And the other yeah. thing is like 1980 Herschel Walker. Um, yeah. You know, and and it was like, I mean, it was totally, but like, I really felt like these guys supposed to be SEC. You know, that's what I was feeling about the, the defensive coordinators that I was watching. I was like, you guys are really strategically miscalculating what this team is good at and what this team is bad at. Um, and, uh, you know, <laughs> and as, as just one example of that, um, like by far their most effective run play, uh, the designed rushing play was Stetson Bennett, keeping the ball on the outside zone read keep, which like Adam, you, you've been a ducks fan for a minute. Like how long has that been a pac 12 staple? <laughs> uh, quite some time. Sure. I mean, before it was even yeah, the Pac-12, can... right? <laughs> like, oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah. I mean, it, even coming from a uh, from a Oregon standpoint, you throw that all the way back to Achilles Smith. Um, sure, you know, we've, it's it's always been kind of like a, and especially especially since the 2005 switch to the uh, spread option. Sure, uh, that was yeah, that was just kind of the bread and butter of Oregon. You played Oregon, you knew their quarterback was going to run wild. And so you so know that it was yeah nothing nothing we hadn't seen out here on the west coast that's for sure yeah exactly I mean that was what was so bizarre about watching the George, that particular play of the Georgia film was that like here's this play that's been a Pac-12 staple for the better part of twenty years right and in fact in some ways influences the ways that Pac-12 defenses had to construct their rosters like you know we need OLBs who can run laterally like we need safeties who are a little bigger and come down to the box you know, or, or, you know, can run the angle to get the outside runs, you know, this sort of thing, or we need to be able to have two different guys off the edge. Cause the first one's going to trigger the keep and the second one's the one who's actually going to make the tackle. Like you can see the way that Pac-12 defenses evolve in order to handle the Pac-12, the, you know, the, the quarterback keeper on the zone read and like, and then I flip on the, 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 the SEC TP in the year of our Lord, 2021, you know, what's that 17 years, you know, after Oregon switches to the spread option. Um, yeah. And, and watching the sec defenses sort of like, I mean, I'm just reading body language here, but they're like, hold on. The quarterback is keeping the ball. Like, is that allowed? Is that legal? Like <laughs> refs, can you throw a flag? Well, I think because uh, sans Tim Tebow, you just, you really never saw an SEC team find a lot of success doing that. Because the way I guess the SEC so. is constructed, like you know, I only put one of them in my article, but I, you know, I had I had something like twenty five to choose from of you know of Georgia quarterbacks, you know, keeping the ball and running to the outside, and every single time, you know, it's the correct read. You know, it's not like he's doing that you know, to show off or whatever. It's because the defensive end crashes super duper duper hard, you know, uh, it's like, if you're not being blocked, you're the red and the quarterback is staring at you. That means you're the red end, which means you need to stay outside and, and trust your interior, you know, gap filling in order to handle the quarterback keep or excuse me, the, the, the opposite of the quarterback keep the, the running back handoff. Uh, and, and, and you need to, you know, force the, the, the quarterback to do that by staying outside. And every single time it was like beeline for the running back. Like they'd never even heard of this, the, you know, there's an option. What? Um, I was so crazy. And, and like, this, this is a, just one example of, of many ways that I felt like I was watching sec defensive coordinators, you know, screw up. Um, and then eventually I saw SEC defensive coordinators correct themselves, which is all, you know, I'm not really trying to take away from Georgia's, you know, um, uh, offensive success here. But I do think that, like, you know, um, that, that, that because Dan Lanning is Oregon's coach and Dan Lanning's been watching this stuff for an entire year, you know, it feels like it's very unlikely that Oregon's defense gets surprised by some of the stuff that was surprising SEC defenses. I know there's been a long story, but it's like, that's, that's the landing advantage, you know, on top of everything else that he brings, just the, the, like, there's no way that George is going to do something that surprises Oregon in this game. Like no way. And I think a large part of George's success in 2021 was doing stuff that was surprising opponents. So I think that advantage yeah. will be taken away from them. Yeah, I, I agree. And 
kind of like, you know, my, my, my final take on this Georgia team. Now, granted, I'm using this example in, in contrast to what you mentioned before about the starters getting so many reps while the backups just kind of sit in the wings, okay? Uh, apples and oranges, I'm not comparing the actual talent level because that would be silly. Uh, but it, it, it reminds me in a way of uh, throwing it back exactly 20 years uh, when you had the uh, 2001 Miami Hurricanes, who a lot of people consider to be the greatest college football team ever assembled. And uh, talent-wise, that's certainly an argument, and result-wise, too, uh, because you know that was basically like trotting out an NFL team onto the field each week. Um, the following season, they got through you know the, all the seasons, keeping their number one spot, but uh, I think it was pretty obvious that it was not the same Hurricanes team from the year before. All of a sudden, you know what I mean? It was they, they were they were kind of hanging on to their number one ranking by the skin of their teeth, and um, the reasoning being is because, like I said, when when you have that much you know talent, and particularly for them also on the defensive end, um, their, their their defense in two thousand one was an absolute turnover machine, and you know when you have that many great players lined up on there, and then you see so many of them depart for the NFL to where the backups just did not have the same amount of experience. You know, the, the, the winning continues because they just, they have enough talent to continue winning, but you do see a big drop off in like the production and the dominance of the defense from 2001 to 2002 with Miami. And I think that's kind of something similar that we might see from Georgia. Okay. So don't be surprised if this year's Georgia squad, not just against Oregon in the opening game, uh, because both teams are feeling each other out, which I do agree with your take on that. I think it will be a higher scoring game, and I wouldn't be surprised at all if it ended with both teams in the 30s. But don't be surprised if you see throughout the entire season that although they, they may well continue to win lots of games and you know could just as easily find themselves back in the college football playoff, I don't think you're going to see that that kind of just sheer defensive dominance that you saw last year, uh, just simply because of that reason. Um, you just had that that monumental amount of talent that is now gone, and the backups just, they have the talent, but they just have no experience. Yeah, I mean, that was in particular watching their defensive line, you know, uh, last year where, you know, their three starters, it it was, you know, Jordan Davis, who was just an absolute freak in one way where he was a nose tackle who could move like a cat, you know, like it's like human beings shouldn't be able to do that. And you know, Devontae Wyatt, you know, who was a a guy who could play anywhere from five tech to zero tech, like that level of flexibility was incredible. And then Trayvon Walker, who was, you know, the number one overall pick in the the, the NFL draft, you know, where he's, he's a defensive end who's like seriously strong enough to play, you know, defensive end, you know, in the traditional way, you know, where he's like stacking up tackles or shooting the B gap, you know, or, you know, uh, you know, but at the same time he can drop into coverage with the best of them, you know, plays as flexibly and as fast and as long as an outside linebacker, like all three of those guys were like, you know, they weren't just good at doing their job. They were good at, you know, like expanding on that job. Um, and like, that was it. That was the sort of the secret, you know, um, um, or, or if there's another secret, it was Dan Lanning's, you know, blitz and simulated pressures and they're not going to have that one either. Um, but anyway, the, 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 you know, that, that was, what was remarkable about their defensive line is that, you know, they're sort of like superhuman freaks who could play, you know, they were playing one position, but they were really playing two positions and multiplied that by three guys. And like, I think they have well, like one guy who's good enough to do that. Jalen Carter, who's coming back, but like, I'm not seeing that in the rest of the, the dudes, like not at all. I'm seeing guys who are fairly good at the position that they play, but they don't have like that other thing that they do. Um, and like, uh, I, you know, and I was getting that from, you know, when I would ask this question to Georgia fans, like, do you think I'm, you know, crazy for saying, I think the defensive line is going to take a, a fairly significant step back for losing these like superhumans. Like almost everybody said like, no, that that's a pretty reasonable prediction. And, 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 and the f- folks who disagreed was like, 
I don't the the folks who disagreed made the following argument, which is an interesting argument, um, which is that like we didn't know those guys had those superpowers this time last year, and so it is entirely possible that the new guys who are coming online, they may have hidden superpowers that you're going to find in 2022. But even if I believe that's true, are we going to see it in the first game? You know, I like it, it's hard for me to believe that's hard for me to believe. I really feel like Oregon's offensive line against this defensive line and against totally inexperienced, albeit very talented linebackers. Like I feel like Oregon's offensive blocking versus Georgia's, you know, defensive front is at the very least an even battle. And, and I might want to give Oregon the advantage. Um, and like if, you know, if that means you can run the ball and that means that Nick's or whoever the quarterback is, has time to make at least short, you know, throws to, to, to keep the, you know, the, the sticks moving, like that means the game is in play, you know, like Georgia, the, Georgia was dominant team last year because, you know, because their defense shut everything down. Um, and, and, and and because the offense had all of these weapons, you know, it was like they, 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 it wasn't a team that was like one thing and the other side was like whatever it was getting dragged along. It was because both things were operational simultaneously um, and, and and both things were elite, you know, simultaneously. They had elite tight ends to throw to. They had an elite defensive front. Um, other aspects of their game on both sides of the ball were not elite. I don't think they had an elite secondary, and I don't think they have elite um, uh, wide receivers, and I don't think they have an elite running game. Um, but that didn't matter. They were elite at one thing on offense, which was throwing to the tight ends. And, and, well, I, I guess one thing with two components on offense, which is the offensive line gave them plenty of protection for Stetson Bennett to pick apart the opposing defense with their tight ends. And they had one thing that was super elite on defense, which was super versatile defensive front players on the line and on the inside linebackers um, that let them do more with less. And that really covered up some of the problems that they had in the secondary. Um, And like, and, but you know, here's where I'm going with this. Like Georgia's offense, Georgia's offense was kind of an outlier in terms of the teams that I study in terms of their uh, efficiency. Um, Really across almost all the stats that I study on offense, they were barely above 50% in their efficiency for passing and running. Um, in 2021, their run explosiveness was uh, below average. Their run yards per carry was mediocre, um, but their passing explosive rate was incredible. They were getting more than you know one out of four passes by Stetson Bennett gained 15 plus yards. That was enough to cover up every other problem that they had on offense. But they had problems on offense. They were, they were real problems. It's just they didn't wind up mattering because their explosive passing defense was so good or uh, offense was so good. Um, and on defense, sort of same thing. If you could get into the second level, you could really do pretty well against Georgia because their secondary can't tackle and they can't really cover very well. Um, you know, they're, they're like, that was all over my, my, my article as well as like, you know, their, their, their explosive, uh, defense rate, um, uh, especially against the pass was not elite. It was good. It wasn't great. Um, but you weren't getting to past the second level because their defensive front was like an unholy, Oh my God, you know, level of talent. And that's exactly where the, where the NFL draft hit him the hardest, you know, like I'm not, I'm not out here predicting that Oregon's going to, going to run away with this game. I'm not even predicting that Oregon's going to win, you know, certainly not comfortably, but like you could, the thing that emerged from my film study of Georgia was that this team was not invincible. It didn't, you know, it didn't lack weak spots. It actually had more weak spots than most championship caliber teams than I study. It's just that the things that they were good at were, they were so good that it made the rest of the things not matter. And one of those two things has sort of gone away. And like, where does that leave Georgia? I sort of think it leaves them vulnerable. Um, It does. I I think Oregon has 
at least at least a puncher's chance in this game. So, I mean, I feel me... about the same way about it that I feel felt about Oregon playing Ohio State last year. Yeah. Which is, yeah. you know, yeah, same way. Like, I didn't predict Oregon was going to win that game. I said that Oregon's going to cover. You know, it was like a 14 and a half point spread. And I said, Oregon's going to cover that one. It's going to be closer than you think. It should be a good competitive yeah. game. I don't know. It'll be a touchdown for one team or the other, but I don't know who it's going to be. And I would probably lean towards Ohio State. And that's what I feel about this Georgia game, too. Like, it's 17 and a half point spread. I would take Oregon um, with the points. Um, and I feel like it's going to be, you know, seven, 10 point game. Um, and, and that I'd lean Georgia's way, but like the idea that Georgia, Oregon's going to be outclassed in this game, I don't think so. Georgia has enough vulnerabilities that, 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 that I think that's yeah. unlikely, you know, with, with the exception of the possibility that I do think is like a decent possibility that Georgia sort of pulls away in the fourth quarter with some like, Oh, that's yeah. the undefendable tight ends. Yeah. All right. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, you know, I think that there's, there's, a I think it would be very similar happens. to the Ohio state game last year. Um, mm-hmm. The Ohio State team. Now, I'm not taking away from what Oregon did last year at all. Uh, going into the horseshoe and winning versus a number three team is historic. This is one of their best regular season wins of all time. Was that the same Ohio State team that played Michigan at the end of the season? Was that the same Ohio State team that played Utah in the Rose Bowl? No. So, I, you know, I see what you mean. It's the early season yeah. vulnerability. It's the time to strike. That's true. You know, like, like I think Oregon knows more about who it is than Georgia knows about who they are right now. Like the, the returning production for Oregon is certainly higher. Um, there's yeah. a, you know, it, not at the most important position, which is quarterback, you know, Oregon still doesn't know what it's got in bone. Hell, they still haven't declared a starting quarterback. It might not even be bone Nix, but it, if it is like, it's not like bone Nix has a great record against Georgia. Um, it's not yeah. like, you know, he has a great NCAA, you know, career passer rating. Now I think there are probably some reasons that have to do with the way that Auburn constituted its Self, you know that will not obtain now that he's at Oregon and so I think there's a reason to uh, I, I think that it is reasonable to hope that you know Nick sees a substantial degree of improvement at Oregon for those reasons and that you know the the Georgia fans that I was talking to on their podcast the DGD podcast you know was when I was on their show on Monday like they were you know, they were tripping over themselves to tell you why Auburn sucks, which I guess I should expect that out of Georgia fans. Right. But like, you know, they were tripping all over themselves to, 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 to tell me stuff that I already agreed with, which is that, you know, Auburn's offensive line stunk and they weren't recruiting wide receivers. And Mike Bobo was not a good offensive coordinator and Chad Morris kind of stinks too. Um, that, you know, like, and I was like, yeah, man. Um, but like, it's still an unknown question how Bonix is going to be. On the other hand, Georgia at their most important position, the quarterback leg knows what they got in Stetson Bennett. In fact, you know, that was something else that I was documenting in my, my film study article was like all the ways that Todd Munkin, their offensive coordinator, who I think is really good, um, was like compensating for some of the arm talent limitations that Bennett has, you know, in terms of like designing rollout plays and, and other things. Um, in, in order to hit. So like they really, really know what they have at quarterback and Oregon is not really certain what they have at quarterback. And so there's an asymmetry there, but all the other ways that there's an asymmetry goes in Oregon's favor. Like Oregon is much more certain about what they've got at um, wide receiver. They're much more certain about what they've got about their offensive line. They're much more certain about what they've got in terms of their running backs. They're much more certain about what they've got in terms of their defensive line and their linebackers and their safeties and their cornerbacks. Um, Like uh, the, the, you know, um, in terms of personnel, but on the other hand, the film, you know, like Oregon's going to be having new schemes on the offense and defense. Georgia is not going to be having new schemes on their offense and defense. Like, you know, it's kind of crazy. It's like Oregon returns their personnel, but not their schemes. Georgia returns their schemes, but not their personnel. And like, that's exactly how you want it. If you're an Oregon fan, you know, like, yeah, there's, there's, there, there's a bunch of reasons to think this game is going to be pretty competitive. Um, and, and, uh, uh, you know, I might have to eat my words if Georgia pulls this thing, you know, away and makes Oregon look bad, but like it just doesn't feel like that's going to be the case. Yeah, agreed. Um, if I, you know, was a, was a betting man, um, I'm I'm going to go with, like I said, a, a, at least a one score game throughout. Uh, I think Georgia maybe pulls away a little bit in the fourth quarter and 
wins by 10, I'd say, if, if mm. I you know, had to go in and take an educated guess. All right. I think that'll wrap us up for this week. Uh, Alan, it's been good talking to you. You got any parting thoughts for us? Um, just excited to be out of the doldrums and, and back into the sports swing of things. So um, here's to a great upcoming athletic season and go Ducks. Amen, brother. All right, everybody, take it easy. Uh, we'll catch you on the flip side.